Number three, we're continuing on with this section that deals with the calling and virtues with regards to the elder or overseer. And as we're seeing each week as we unpack more and more the high calling of anyone who aspires the office of elder, pastor, shepherd, minister, all these interchangeable words, we also have to understand that these virtues start first with every believer. They are a virtue that are meant to be mastered or meant to be matured into. So now if we come to the study of the qualifications for overseers or the qualifications for elders or pastors, we have to always remember that these qualifications are for everyone and that these are the virtues of the fruit of a Christ-centered life and it is the virtues for every believer to faithfully pray and to study God's word in the hope of maturing by the grace of God and the equipping of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, once again, we're just going to read from chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll work our way down through this passage. Here's the word of God. Let us read together. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This morning we're going to be unpacking from verses 6 through 7. Let's just pray together before we come to the study of God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, Lord, that avails so many, Father, to hear the reading of your Word, to study your Word, Father. And to come before you, Lord, with nothing of ourselves apart from a deep desire, Lord, that the Holy Spirit may enlighten us to the truth of this passage. We pray, Father, that we do not simply set this aside as being merely a qualification of an elder, but for all of us, Lord, to see the dangers of what we have just read, Father, to see the high calling of what we have just read, and to see the beauty and the glory and your majesty displayed through each and every one of us who profess to be followers of you. So Father, we ask this morning, and I ask, Lord, that you guide me, Lord, in the teaching of your word, that I may add nothing to it, nor take anything away from it, Father, but that I may simply speak truth as an overflow of my heart, guided by the Holy Spirit, and that all of us, Lord, may receive knowledge and be lifted up, Father, And to leave this place changed individuals for your glory, by your strength, and by your grace. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've spent some time unpacking the beginnings of chapter 3. We spent some seven weeks unpacking verse 2. And as we've progressed down through it, last week we looked at he must manage or lead his own household well. 
with dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And Paul's cited, as we looked at last week, Timothy, that if he wants to be able to see the true fruit, the true calling into the ministry, you first and foremost have to look not only at these virtual callings or virtuous callings, but you also have to look at how he is managing his own home. And how it is not merely enough to be a teacher of the word, to be self-controlled, to be above reproach or sober-minded or all the other ones that he has listed. If your home is not in accordance to scripture, if your wife is not submissive, if your children is not submissive, and you as leader of the home are not leading your family in all the ways of life, including and in particular spiritual needs, as in the catechizing of your kids and the maturing of your wife and the leading spiritually of your family, you're not qualified to be an elder, pastor or overseer, regardless if you have a degree, a master's or a doctorate. These are specific callings that will ultimately disqualify anyone from this calling of overseer. But I'm going to read this morning when he goes on then in verse 6 to say, he must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now it's important for us to understand why that's in here. Why is Paul saying to Timothy that the person who's an overseer cannot be a recent convert? So even though he may have his home in order, even though he may be above reproach, sober-minded, respectable, self-controlled, hospitable, a fantastic teacher, and not a lover of money, and a gentle and not quarrelsome, he cannot be a recent convert. Now we have to ask ourselves why. Because in particular, if you take it right with me, we read the exact calling for elder in the book of Titus, but this is not in it. Nowhere in, in, for, in Titus chapter 1, whenever Paul is speaking to Titus, whenever Titus is in the island of Crete, and he has left Titus to instill elders, he leaves out this particular virtue, this particular aspect of someone who is not a recent convert. And we can read the parallel verse with what we have just read from verse 5 of chapter 1 of Titus. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here we have the parallel chapter of what it means to be an elder but yet it is missing here this he cannot be a recent convert and the reason for that is that everyone in Crete at the time of that letter were recent converts so the danger of appointing a recent convert to an elder overseer shepherd pastor whatever word we want to use is there is no danger if everyone is a new convert Contacts for us would probably be for any one of us who went into the mission field and we go into an unreached people group and say we lead many to Christ and we're only able to stay there for a short term, maybe six months, maybe even six years, maybe only six weeks. 
When we have to leave, we have to instill elders within the church. That is what is being specified in Titus. There's something different going on here in 1 Timothy. Titus is being told that all those who have come to salvation in Crete are all new converts. Therefore, there is no danger, as he cites here in 1 Timothy, that if you do put a a recent convert into eldership, he will become puffed up and conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there is something specific about putting in a new convert into an established church, into a church that has been there for many years, into an eldership that has been seasoned and has matured over many years. For us who understand that this is being written to Timothy at Ephesus, we could go into the book of Acts and see how Paul himself spent three years one-on-one discipling the elders of the church of Ephesus. That is why we have it in the book of Ephesians as well. This is a church that has been established for a period of time. So if someone was to be appointed an elder, it was to give them credence. It was to lift them up on power or on the same level, the same power as those who were taught by Paul. And if that person is a recent convert and that person has been thrusted into this lofted position... Because those who are in that position have been Christians for some time. They have been maturing and seasoning into that place. And ultimately they also could be somebody who was taught specifically and personally by Paul. And what Paul is saying here, if you're not ready for that, you might become filled with conceit. Whereas if you're put into that same environment in the context of Titus, well, everybody is a new convert. Therefore, you're not being lifted up amongst the people because everybody's the same. So what does it mean whenever he says a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit? And particularly if it means to fall into the condemnation of the devil. Well, conceit means pride. It means massive self-approval. So it may be for somebody who has just recently come into the faith and they are put against some of maybe the pillars of what we might see in the Christian community today. Although we're all the same, we all understand that there is those amongst us who we see to be more mature. There are those amongst us who we see to be of a high calling, who have been well seasoned. It may be the equivalent of somebody being put in parallel to some of the theologian giants of our own time, such as... John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, or whoever you wish to name. He, Paul is saying here, that cannot be the case. Because if you do do that, you will put this new convert in a position where he will be self-approving of himself and see himself the same as the other already established elders who have been there for some time. So the danger is, don't appoint a recent convert as an elder in a church context that has elders who have already been there for a lengthy period of time. Otherwise, they'll become prideful. And by coming prideful, they'll fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, what does that mean? Whenever we read that, does that mean that the devil is simply going to condemn that person because of their pride? No. It means that the sin that they're going to fall into is the exact same condemnation and sin that the devil himself fell into. If anyone remembers back, and I would point you back to it, in week four of the study of 1 Timothy, we unpacked in chapter 1, verse 18, 
Where it says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That is, by them, you may wage the good warfare. And if you go back to that online, or if you think back to that, we unpacked that that week by looking at what that warfare was and how that warfare came about. And particularly where we looked at the fall of the devil. And how it was the devil's own pride in himself. How we looked at how could this righteous, perfect, holy, unblemished, high called cherubim, which of whom we know in the scriptures there's only three. The devil's parallel counterparts, those who are of the same level of the devil was, are two individuals who we know well in scripture. The first is Michael. The second is Gabriel, Michael, who is the head cherubim, the head angel over God's army. He is massively powerful, and we read about him in the words of Scripture. We also know of the angel Gabriel, again, a cherubim of high calling, who reveals revelation of God's word. And then you have Lucifer, who was even higher than those two, who was given the name that was similar to that of Christ, which was the son of Morning Star. And how all of us name our children Michael and Gabriel, but none of us would name our children Lucifer. And how the scriptures talks about how Lucifer was placed not around the throne of God, but on the throne of God, on the holy mountain itself. And how he walked through the fire and the pillars of smoke, how his, he was uh, clothed in diadems and fine jewels, how his beauty was unsurpassable, his knowledge was unsurpassable. He was the leader of the heavenly hosts with worship, and how God himself gave the devil attributes similar to himself, but it was that holy attributes of God placed within a, cre- a creative a creature that caused that very creature to sin. This is what is being pointed out by Paul. If you put somebody who is not ready spiritually, maturely enough into leadership and he looks around himself and he sees other men of, of seasoned, matured status who are bearing fruit and they're placed into that same context, be careful, Paul says, lest they fall into the exact same entrapment that the devil fell into, which is pride in self. Pride in having arrived. Pride as the devil would have looked upon himself and said, no one else in all of the heavenly hosts is as intelligent, as beautiful, as clothed in these diadems and these diamonds. I am set apart. He should have been set apart to point to the worship of God. Instead, he became corrupted. He became self-righteous, full of pride and believing that he himself should be God. We all know how the story unfurls as the devil starts to lead an insurrection against the holy God himself, believing himself to be as powerful as God, taking a third of the angels with him, leading them into the same false deception as they looked upon his beauty and looked upon his power and looked upon all the things that God had given him. Rather than looking at God who had all those things more so and had actually instilled this into a creature. And they fall and are defeated and become demons 
and the demonic forces that are prevalent throughout this world today, trying to lead us into the exact same fall, into the exact same pride. It's why Christ continually says, those of, oh, those of whom are going to follow me must deny self. Paul says here, do not put someone in the position where they are going to feel lifted up, lawful and full of pride. This is the danger of every pastor, teacher. This is the danger of every church. Once you become successful, once you have many numbers, once you start to reach out and have a widespread ministry, once you start to write books, or once you start to become popular in podcasts, once you start to become viral within social media, there becomes this self-aware, self-sustaining ownership of what you're doing. Even from a point of view of making disciples, even from a point of view of the mission field, it's always the same sin. It's the sin that came into the garden with Adam and Eve. You can be just like God. He's trying to keep things away from you. It was put very well by one theologian who said that as you're leading the church, as you're following Christ, you have this innate ability to understand that God is sustaining you. He said it's the same as whenever he is teaching his child how to ride a bike. As that child is starting to pedal, he is holding the back of the seat. He's stabilizing that child. And the difference is between God and between us is that if we're on the bike in that same metaphor, we should never get to the stage where we think I'm ready for you to let go. I can do this on my own. You have to be always looking back. Always comforted in the fact that it is God who is stabilizing. God who is directing. And God who is enabling you to ride that bike. This is what Paul is saying. Not only for the pastor elder. But for everyone. Do not allow yourself to become so puffed up. Allow yourself to become so full of conceit. That word puffed up. So smoked. In other words, full of your own righteousness and your own error. That you start to actually think it is your ability that's growing the church, Pastor Elder. It's your ability to make disciples. Or even worse than that, that it's your church. That it's your ministry. That it's your personality or your testimony. When it's all God's. This is the conceit of the devil fell into. We look at it really briefly. As I said, we really unpack this in depth on week four. Go back to that to unpack it even more. But we'll have a look at one of the chapters that we studied that week, which is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. Chapter 28, we unpack this chapter in depth in week 4, but we'll go over it briefly again. And It's the chapter that talks about the Prince of Tyre. And all the way down through from chapter 1, all the way through chapter to verse 10, chapter 1 verse, or chapter 28, verse 1 through verse 10, we have this condemnation of the Prince of Tyre and the judgment that's going to come on the Prince of Tyre. And then we have through the prophet Ezekiel, God speaking to the king of Tyre. And says, moreover, verse 11, 
The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, rise and laminate over the king of Tyre. Well, he's just named who the prince of Tyre was, who actually was the physical king. But what God's doing here, he's saying, I want you to address not the puppet, but the puppet master. The one who's causing the prince of Tyre to live this way. The one who's filling him full of conceit and pride and puffing him up to actually believe that he is in control and that I, a sovereign God, address and laminate for the king of Tyre, the devil, that fallen cherubim, Lucifer himself, the one who still has learned, the one who continually comes against the holy God. And this is what he has to say. You were the signet of perfection. You were, past tense. You were sealed in perfection. I made you perfect. Full of wisdom. And perfect in beauty. For those of us who understand depictions of the devil now. That happened in and around the Reformation period where they started to want to attack the devil. So they conjured up images that took away from his beauty and they made him a goat and they made him have a tail and they gave him horns and they made him disfigured. Nowhere in scripture do we read of that. It was all a man-made scheme to try to point away from the beauty and the majesty that the devil originally had. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he lists the stones right down to verse uh, 14. You were an, an anointed garden cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. He walked in the presence and the glory of God closer than any other angel. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, in the abundance of the gifts that I give to you. Now he's speaking directly to the devil. You were perfect, you were blameless, you were righteous. But yet the abundance of the gifts that I give to you caused you to become self-prideful. Believing yourself to be God. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sin. That violence is the, the lifting up and the coming against God with a third of the angels. The holy war of heaven that was fought against Lucifer and the fallen soon-to-be angels and Michael and Gabriel and the rest of the angelic host. So I cast you as, as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O garden cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast arise on you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire from your midst and it consumed you. If you had time to go into Isaiah 14, it lists all the things that the devil actually did. So back to 1 Timothy. So here we have an important charge. 
not only just merely for recent converts aspiring to be elders, but it's for every person who is a recent convert or a convert who is still maturing, a constant reminder of the condemnation that the devil fell into. Once we get to the ability that we actually start to believe that we can come into the presence of God and worship, whether it be collectively or individually, because of something we've done, we start to fall into the condemnation of the devil. That's why the devil is apt at creating and making pharisaical leaders. This is the whole problem that Timothy is dealing with in Ephesus. The Ephesian church has fallen into the condemnation of the devil. People are desiring to be elders because they want to be lifted up and shown esteem within the community. People are wishing, as we read in chapter 1, to be those of the Judaizers. To be seen as those full of wisdom yet knowing nothing of the law. It is in the church everywhere. It is the tactic of the devil to make you prideful. And to make you actually think that you and what you're doing in your own self-righteousness. Is the ability to come before a holy God and worship him rather than the cross. It is a sin that cannot be named amongst anyone. That is why we are called to be humble. And contrite of spirit continually. This is why the church today is throwing this out. Because when you actually have to be, as it says here, humble and not puffed up. There is something that comes with humility. Constant conviction of your sin. No one who is in eldership and leadership have mastered all these qualities. I definitely have not mastered them all. But it is my heart's desire. And it is by the grace of God. That he is maturing me and the other elders into this. But we also have to look at. This is what is killing the church today. Not just from the elders. But from the laity as well. We desire a church. That does not convict. We desire a church that lifts us up. We desire a church that tells us that we're good people, that we're okay, that God is happy with us because of what we have done, rather than saying God is happy with us because of what his son has done. That's what leads us into authentic worship. That's what leads us into a sacrificial life, to realize the beauty and the majesty and the gulf of this grace that has been lavishly shown upon us. Like we looked at in Wednesday night, how all of us were those sheep that had gone astray on the mountain edge in outer darkness. And yet Christ comes like the shepherd and lifts us up and places us around his neck. It is by his strength that we are sustained. It is by his work of rescue that we have been ransomed. It's all of Christ. It all is Christ. It is for his glory and not ours. It is how Christ himself with the heart of the Holy Father was in and ministering to those who were sickened in sin. The prostitutes, the murderers, the tax collectors, those who were completely lost. Not the 99 self-righteous, self-made sheep that he leaves behind. It is the pharisaical heart. It is for each and every one of us that if we come into church and we are not convicted under the Holy Spirit, shown plainly the gulf that is between us and the holiness of God, and then in that gulf we have nowhere else to turn apart from once again repenting and saying, Father, praise you, it is all of you, it is all of you, it is all of you. It is a dangerous thing to come into the prayers with 
our Heavenly Father and not understand the depths of our depravity still. Read Paul as he progressed and matured and seasoned into his sanctification process, he constantly came back to one thing. He was an even bigger sinner today and he'll be an even bigger sinner tomorrow because it is his wisdom of how holy God is and how great the cross was and how unmeasurable we are in sin and how immeasurable his grace is to ransom us out of what therefore Christ never becomes old. The cross should be as glorious to us today as it was the, the moment we knelt before it and confessed our sins and said, I can do nothing of myself apart from believe that it is sufficient, it is done, it is enough. The atonement that was paid even set a sinner like me free from the depravity that I find myself in. This is what Paul cites. That's why if you are a recent convert and you desire the office of elder, pastor and overseer in a church that has been there for some time, be careful, he says. Don't do it. If you are a follower of Christ and you start to fall into the same condemnation, repent and turn because this is where the devil fell. This is his scheme that is everywhere. He goes on. Verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Parallel verses here. If you are not humble, if you are not contrite, if you are not realizing the depths of your depravity and the gracious gift of God, then you will end up being molded and shaped by the views of outsiders. He says he must be well thought of by outsiders. Let's be careful here. He's not saying that the world has to say the Mount Baptist Church, that's the church for me. It is one of the greatest churches that I've ever seen. You know what? The pastor and the elders in there are really nice guys. I really like them. He's saying that the world has to say, to see that place over there, be careful before you go in there. Well thought of from the point of view of how God sees the church. That is a church that will convict and preach and teach and rebuke sin. That is a church that will call you and the masses and all the people groups to repentance. That is how you have to be named amongst outsiders. At least what? You fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Once you start to believe in your own self-righteousness, the next step out of self-righteousness is self-approval. Not approval by God's standards, but approval by man's standards. Approval by others outside of the church. Approval for people to want you involved in their groups, to want you involved in their ministries, to want you involved in different things because you're an eloquent speaker, or you're a motivational speaker, or you draw numbers, and you start to actually... Mark yourself not against scripture as an elder teacher, but against the approval of how many people are in your church. How, many, how much of a big crowd that you actually can draw. It's the snare of the devil. We read about it in Romans 2, 20, 24 from a parallel. Romans 2, 24 says, For as it is written... 
The name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. You can go either two ways. The Gentiles are going are to blaspheme the holy God himself because you conduct yourself in the pharisaical self-righteousness. You want nothing to do with the ways of God. It's all to do with your ways and your church and your kingdom and your flock and all about you. You become a Pope. You become this potent person from the pulpit who just lays down all about your kingdom and your law. Paul says, be gone with it. This is why the church in Ephesus was in the position that it was in. Those who did not belong to the church were looking at the leadership and they either saw a pharisaical view of someone who was so puffed up and so full of their own righteousness and yet would still go and be with the drunkards and have many women and be full of money and full of greed. And they looked at it and said, how is that anything like the life of Christ that we read about in Scripture? This is the calling for the church for leadership for everyone. It's a warning here this morning for all of us. When you sit and as I stand here now before the Lord, what makes us righteous before Him now? What makes you think He's going to answer the prayers of this church individually or collectively? What makes you think that you're able to raise your eyes a little bit above your pews this morning to the cross? What makes you believe this week that you're in a good position to go and to make disciples? What makes you believe that you're in a position to lead your family or to submit to your husband? What makes you believe that you, if you breathe your last, you will go and stand before a holy God and Him say, Come, my faithful servant. If it is only based upon how good you think you are or how much sin you've turned against this week, or for anything else that can be named, you are in great danger. It is the blood of Christ alone that makes you righteous. All our works are like filthy rags. Everything good that you have done this week, and you are self-aware of your goodness, before the Holy God is nothing more than dumb. And in fact, it's worse than that. It's starting to lead you away from complete and utter dependency on the grace of God. Are we meant to turn from our sin? Yes. Are we meant to say no to the debauchery of this world all around us? Absolutely. Are we meant to pray fast and to study his word? Yes. But none of those things make us righteous. The righteousness that every person in here has if they are professors of Christ is the atonement paid for them by Christ alone upon the cross alone where the righteousness of Christ that no man could obtain was given and imputed to everyone who confesses that he is King and Lord and Saviour of their life. It is that same grace that sustains you every day and every minute. Therefore, God opposes the pride. He casts down the pride. The pride. And he lifts up the humble, the broken, the contrite of spirit. Those who realize that they are a sinner in the midst of a mess that they can never get out of. Like somebody who dives into an ocean of realization of their own inadequacies and their own sin. 
And the deeper that you go with the knowledge, and the deeper that you swim into that pit, into that seabed, you find only one thing the deeper you go. Christ. Every time you remember something that you've done, Christ is there. Ped and full. Every time you realize that you've fallen once again and that you're being caught into the snare of the devil in pride, there is Christ once again, paying it in full by his grace. It is why it is good news for all of us who are heavenly laden by our guilt and our sins of our past. How do we shake ourselves free from it? The realization of the truth that Christ paid it all. The realization that he's sovereign in it all. That in the midst of the horrific things that you've ever thought or ever did, God still folded it and worked it into his sovereign, perfect will for all humanity. That's where we go. That's where the eldership have to go. We need to be humble and contrite of heart in fear of falling into the same snare and the same depravity as the devil. To believe that we are self-sustainable, to believe that we are somehow more or better than someone else. The higher we go for Christ, the lower we should come. Christ himself washed the disciples' feet. He came to serve, not to be served. Therefore, ask yourselves, why should we be any different? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that we know this morning that our adversary, the devil, prowls around, Father, seeking someone to devour, someone to become prideful, someone who starts to long and to love the approval of man, someone who starts to see the treasure that is not in heaven, or that that isn't in heaven, but in the earth, someone who desires to be king, Lord and God of their own lives. Father, help us to run away from this heart and this mindset. Help us to cling so tightly and closely to the cross. Help us to see that we are nothing, Father, without you. And help us to see, Lord, that there is not one difference, Father, between us who sit here this morning and the most unthinkable depraved, sinful acts of the world apart from the blood of Christ. You approve of us as sons and daughters this morning because of the blood of Christ. You approve, Father God, our ministries and you build your church because of the power and the work of Christ, not of us. Therefore, Father, we ask, Lord, once again this morning that we can remain humble, Father, but rejoicing in that humility, Lord, Rejoicing in the fact that you loved us so much that you give us your only begotten Son. For whoever would believe, Father, that we need a Saviour, that we need redemption. And that we throw ourselves at the mercy of the cross and we cry out to you, Abba, Father, we will be saved. We will be planted, Lord, into that good soil. We will be matured, Father God, and that we will bear fruit that lasts, O Lord. That is our ask this morning. That is our 
calling upon you, Lord. Have your way in this church, O Heavenly Father. Have your way in our hearts, O God, that we may boast in nothing else apart from you and your work on the cross and therefore show mercy and grace to others in the realisation that we have been shown so much mercy and so much grace that we can't even cognitively think of it, Father. Lord, we praise you and we thank you this morning. May you be exalted in this world. May every false God be cast down and broken and shattered. And may your gospel of truth penetrate every people group, Lord. And then may you come, Father, and take us home to be with you forever. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Christ our Saviour. Amen.